Hey everyone, I've got some exciting news. We're unlocking Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2 and making it available for everyone on our public feed. But if you love our work and want to be the first to listen to Season 3 as it's being released, head over to Patreon. There you'll find break-free versions of past SDS9 episodes, Southpaw and Fight Study, and our other bonus show, Fighter's Brew. You'll also find our Liberation Martial Arts program, which is exclusive to our supporters. It's for beginner and advanced martial artists, as well as people just looking for fitness and rehabilitation. It's a gentle, wholesome, and embodied approach to training. Lots of individuals, trainers, families, friends, collectives, activists, and organizations are already using it. So if you want to support our work and get early access to all our great content, including Season 3 of SDS9, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod and join our community. You can also go to southpawpod.com and find the links there or on our show notes. Thanks for listening and catch you soon. This is Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2, where we analyze Deep Space Nine and Star Trek from a political and historical lens episode by episode. I'm watching DS9 with fresh eyes, and Scott is the veteran Trek fan. We are discussing Season 2 of DS9, Episode 20, The McKee, Part 1. Scott, can you tell us about this episode? I'd love to. Kira and Dax are talking about dating. Kira is a little shallow, and Dax is Dax is pretty flexible as they've lived many lives and have been many genders and have dated lots of people. So they're just like, love is love. Go on dates. We see someone who is part of the Federation tinkering with something. And then we see a Cardassian ship, the Bachnor, is about to depart. It explodes. The Cardassians are asking for info. They are unsure if it is an accident, but most people think it is not. Miles senses Mercassium, a synthetic that is a Starfleet synthetic. It's not an accident. Something created an implosion. It did not explode. It imploded. Commander Calvin Hudson, who we know from being a friend and person, co-worker of Cisco, is now the ranking officer from Starfleet in a demilitarized zone where Cardassians and Federation people share uh, land, and it's very contentious. And he comes back to the station. Calvin says that his job is a joke and the colonies are losing land, and it's a bad treaty deal, and that Cardassia really got a lot of land, and they're still, they're up to something. Calvin says that the Cardassians will respond at some point. Then we see a Vulcan who meets, uh, who meets the saboteur and says that a ship is being prepared. The Vulcan is revealed to be named Zakana. She meets Quark and proposes a business proposition. They will meet later. Well, we, the saboteur was unaware that he was witnessed by a pelican couple who knock out the saboteur and bring him to their quarters. Gold Dukat has secretly boarded some ships and uses his knowledge of the station as he ran Deep Space Nine when it was called Tarek Nor for 10 years, and he boards the station. Cisco can't find Jake, but he is actually with Nog. There's a knees between Ducat and Cisco. The, there's a, in the whole, these two episodes, there's this tete-a-tete where Ducat is like, surely you should trust me. And Cisco is like, I- I'm good. 
Ducat is there unofficially to find out what happened with the Bachnor. But as we know with with Cardassians, you never know what is really being told. There's a lot of they play with information. Ducat believes someone renegade from the Federation is guilty, and they will take a runabout to the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, to see what's going on. As they're in the runabout, Cisco turns off Ducat's control on the runabout so he can't steal the technology. Ducat calls Cisco joyless, which is a compliment to Ducat. They get a distress signal from a merchant vessel being attacked by Cardassians violating the treaty. They hail the Cardassian ships and tell them to disengage. They don't respond. Ducat readies the photons. Another ship is coming. It's a Federation civilian ship, but it is modified. It is not Starfleet, and it is also not responding to the hails and destroys the vessels. There's clearly a war going on in the DMZ. Something's going on. At the dinner with Quark and Zakana, Zakana wants weapons and gear and lots of them and will pay in latinum and needs a lot, and needs it to be continuous. And Quark is trying to court Zakana. He's hoping for something a little more, and he's trying to show how the rules of acquisition are sort of logical and like go with, you know, Vulcan theory. It's not quite working. In the DMZ, the Cardassians and others are arguing. The Federation is being accused of weaponizing the colonies, the gull looking over the colonies finds the confession of the saboteur, who is a colony man. He is a member of an anti-Cardassian force and, quote-unquote, committed suicide in his cell. The saboteur was a farmer who lost it when he lost his land to, Car- to the Cardassians. The Cardassians and the colonists are fighting. The word is that Cardassia is arming the, the DMZ. It is wondered if the Bachnor was bringing weapons to the Cardassians, but there is no proof. Hudson is frustrated and pines for the old days when he and Sisko wore lederhosen and drank in Neo-Berlin. Are the colonists organizing a terror campaign? Hudson says that they have no choice. Ducat admits he knew of the confession and was very upset of the death. No one buys a suicide. The treaty is in peril. Ducat is given quarter in Deep Space Nine. Zakana needs the weapons tonight. Quark will make it happen. Miles confirms again it is a Federation implosive device. Kira comes to talk to Cisco. Kira worries that war is going to happen between the colonists and the Cardassians. Kira thinks Cisco is playing into their Cardassians and knows that Cardassians cannot be trusted in the treaty and posits that the colonists have a right to defend themselves. Ducat is kidnapped by a Vulcan and Starfleet member. Odo wants more control to create a safer place. He says that the place was better when there were more constables and more security and more rules and but you know, safe safe place at what cost? We get we get a little bit of, you know, fascist Odo this episode. We find out that two ships left at night. They want to check the course of a ship. It's a phony ship. They're going to every, the group is going to go to the DMZ. And then another group has taken credit for the kidnapping. They're called the Maquis. The ship is likely at a hideout on the Cardassian border. The Maquis are a Federation group and they are on an asteroid. The team beams to the asteroid. Calvin is the leader of the Maquis. So we start with Kira with some weird comments about Dax's interracial dating and Dax calling Kira out. Seems like one of those scenes using sci-fi to make a real-life commentary. And this actually connects to the theme of the rest of the story arc, which I like. Now this episode of colonizing space and colonists fighting each other, which is just a storyline for this short arc, but now is usually the main storyline for sci-fi video games, shows, books, and movies. Kind of shows how much has changed since then, which is that People want more. They want the people's history of space. And maybe DS9 is a foray into that. And why Trek purists at the time didn't like it, as you've mentioned. The gray area nature of Deep Space Nine was a lot for Trekkers to take in at the time. Gene Roddenberry, when he was alive, 
had certain rules that he wanted the Trek universe to go by, and he didn't want Trek that would deal with war or gray areas or shadows or this sort of stuff. So this episode and the McKee and where it goes was very new and controversial when it came out. Didn't you mention the storyline gets picked up later on Voyager? It, it may spoil a little bit, but the McKee, members of the McKee are important to the storyline. The McKee show up in, in Star Trek The Next Generation. The McKee become a part of, of the story of the Star Trek mythology. This is not a group, you know, a lot of stuff in Deep Space Nine season two and season one characters or, or ideas will show up and then they never come back again. This is not the case with the McKee. Okay, so it shows up on both The Next Generation and Voyager. Yes. Okay, so kind of to my point, DS9 was basically ahead of his time introducing a lot of this, and maybe people back then, a lot of the purists, didn't like that. They weren't ready for that yet. And this also is just like foreshadowing into some ideas and concepts that Deep Space Nine really starts to bite into, which is the gray which is the idea of like Federation people working outside of the law and shadow groups and people doing things that are not utopian. Stuff that we'll also talk about in like Maki part two. Now, when Quark says the rules of acquisition and human rights laws are basically the same thing, not only is this funny, but it's also poignant because capitalists pretend Capitalism and human rights are the same thing when they're actually adversaries. When we meet the Federation colonists, the casting is interesting because it's more black and brown than the rest of the Federation we've seen. Even an indigenous character. And the commander is black and talks about how the Federation doesn't care about them. This is something talked about a lot in social justice movements. Neglect and the withering away of marginalized communities. Neglect and not caring about a group is a way to define marginalized. They're on the margins. So there's lots of social commentary. Also something I've pointed out in previous episodes, there still seems to be different classes of people in Trek, which here they're represented as communities of color. And in other episodes, we've seen refugee communities and on Bajor, the poor. So things are building up. It's not just the Dominion story arc that's a slow burn. DS9 so far has been a slow burn. And, you know, I've been rereading uh, Neo-Colonialism, The Last Stage of Imperialism by uh, Kwame Nkrumah from 1965. And I see a lot of ideas posited in this to the Cardassians where like, you know, just a little quote, like where Neo-Colonialism exists the power exercising control is often the state, state which formerly ruled the territory in question. But this, so for like, for example, in the case of South Vietnam, the former imperial power was France, but neo-colonial control of the state has now gone to the United States. So you see in these territories, Cardassia has relinquished some control, but really they're gunning for that, that imperialism, that, that colonialism. And this is the kind of context we need to discuss Star Trek, or at least DS9. I don't know how you discuss this show without this lens, unless it's purely about pop culture. Well, yeah. And also now that it's a little bit easier through means of, of online databases to find some really important leftist texts of the 60s and 70s, I think applying them to Deep Space Nine, especially since we're using a leftist lens makes sense when appropriate. Some of the episodes that we've been doing, you know, Monster of the Week, it's it's harder to make those connections. But but like this episode had me revisiting neocolonialism because I just think it's such a powerful book, which I found out about from Walter Rodney's History of the Russian Revolution, which I highly recommend. Now let's go back to the interracial dating line at the outset. There's a consistent commentary here, bigotry, marginalizing of people, abandonment and exclusion. With this episode, 
You can even make parallels to reservations and racialized communities where the U.S. dumps toxic contaminants or poisons the water, then ignores them and hope they quietly just die off. Or ignore their pleas for infrastructure improvement and let a natural disaster wipe them out. Which is to say, the analogies are not just in the hands of the writers. We can draw our own parallels and remind ourselves this happens in real life. And in real life, it's way worse. Worse than sci-fi. There's also modern parallels of secretly arming people and of proxy wars and the politics behind borders and people on the ground versus powers behind the scene. We know the West has armed and trained groups they now call terrorists. Remember, DS9 was before 9-11, which again, writers are just writing. But this was happening before 9-11 and still happening. Then Odo was basically calling for the Patriot Act. But the Patriot Act is the analogy we make because of recent history and when we grew up. But this was already happening to black people. This was happening to unions. It happened after the Russian Revolution in case poor people in the U.S. got the wrong idea. It happened during World War I and II and Korea and Vietnam and the Cold War and during the Civil Rights Movement and so on. How many leaders were killed? The West was doing this to other countries, not letting Japan talk about the atomic bombs and putting in a censorship law in Korea where Koreans still can't talk about the atrocities done by the U.S. and its proxies. So it happens in real life, and it's even worse in real life. So there's a lot to this episode. And I like how this episode showed we often frame freedom fighters as terrorists when they're the Ewoks, they're the Vietnamese, fighting the Americans and French. One other note I wanted to make. Currency in this world is not just scarce resources, as we've talked about, but also information. Information will always be currency so long as there's competition. So even without money, other things can act like money. And we've seen in past episodes, information is so valuable, it's worth killing and dying for which seems to be a recurring theme in DS9. So part one was riveting. And like I mentioned about the slow burn, these middle episodes are gradually getting better and better. Uh, I think it's a really solid four out of five mythology episode. Um, the acting is good. The pacing is good. This is, this is the sort of trek that I can really sink my teeth into. Whenever we get Goldicott, who is just like deliciously evil, um, seeing him antagonize and like try to create this sort of, you know, foil to Cisco, which Cisco is having none of, I enjoy that. Where Picard has Q, Cisco has Ducat, and where like Q is a childish omnipresent person. Ducat is a heartless imperialist colonizer who murders people and plays games. So is this a kind of episode that's similar to later DS9, the DS9 that fans say is the real DS9? This is the beginning. Okay. So unlike previous episodes, where we break up every episode. Since this is a two-parter, we're going to jump right into part two and make one extended SDS9 episode. So if you're a fan who likes to watch the episodes before listening to our commentary and breakdown, pause the episode now. Otherwise, let's go into episode 21, The McKee Part 2. A note to our listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, Please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, our fictional narrative podcast, Fighters Brew, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now, bonus articles, Fighters Brew transcripts with extra content, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi or show your solidarity by wearing our swag. 
you can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. McKee Part 2. Calvin reveals he has to protect the people. The McKee want to prove that Cardassian Central Command is giving weapons to the Cardassians in the DMZ territories. They want to use Deep Space Nine as a headquarters, uh, which obviously Cisco is not down with. The McKee stun the crew and escape. Gold Ducat is missing. Admiral and high-grade Federation people come to Deep Space Nine and want to find the McKee and keep the treaty going. But it seems that the treaty is not being honored by both sides. You know, Cisco notes, on Earth it's easy to be happy because we have everything. There's no want. But in the DMZ, the people don't have what they need. Quark has been detained and explained that he brokered weapons to Zagona. He didn't exactly give them. He made he brokered it. He was the middleman. Odo wants to go on the Ducat mission. Lagat Parn says Ducat was part of a renegade group, renegade group getting weapons to the Cardassians and will let Ducat fall for it. No one buys the story. Cardassians do a lot of power play. Retaliations are happening. Kira thinks Ducat should face his fate with the McKee, but Cisco believes the fix is in. Sakona tries to mind meld with Ducat, but she cannot. Ducat is too strong at shielding his thoughts. Um, Cardassians are trained at a young age for mental fortitude and to uh, fight um, torture and to escape these sort of things. They are militarized. They are, to me, they I, they they remind me of like militarized fascists. The crew come to rescue Ducat. A firefight ensues. Cisco tells a McKee guy to go get Calvin and that it's not too late. The team goes back to Deep Space Nine with the McKee. Uh, Cisco says the prisoners will be tried for their crimes. In Cardassia, the outcome, we, we learn that in Cardassia, the outcome of trials are decided before the trial, but they still have it because people like to watch it. Ducat realizes that he's been duped, that the fix is in. Ducat says that he did not know about the smuggling but the smuggling is happening. Ducat will help stop the smuggling if Cisco stops the McKee. They agree. On a runabout, the team tries to intercept third-party arms dealing to Central Command. Ducat threatens the ship, and they seize the ship. Quark and Zakana are detained. Quark doesn't understand why Zakana would be part of the McKee, but she wants peace at any cost, and she believes that to be rational and logical. Central Command has been caught red-handed. Without Central Command support, we are at a stalemate. Quark explains that peace is a sound move. Quark is, is the voice of reason in this moment, but again, it's in a very Quark-like way. Cisco and Ducat talk. Cisco will talk down the, the McKee. Ducat will see what he can do. Cisco comes to see the McKee and pleads that the treaty being compromised will make them the enemy of the Federation. The McKee is planning an attack. Cisco really wants them to stop. Cisco brings Calvin his uniform. He wants a peace treaty. He wants peace. He believes it can be reached and tries to appeal to his friend. But to sort of symbolically show that, that Calvin is beyond this, he destroys his uniform. Ducat and the team have to stop the McKee. The crew are in runabouts. The McKee ships show up. Calvin says, don't make me shoot you. The McKee starts shooting. The runabouts are trying to be evasive and not use lethal force. There is a firefight. Calvin, Calvin is able to leave, but this stops the war. And Cisco stops the war in the DMZ, but worries if he has only delayed the inevitable. So now we're getting into some Fanonian thoughts. You can't have peaceful resistance if the oppressors attack you. That's not the choice of the oppressed. The oppressors decide whether a movement is peaceful or not. The Vulcan character is a nice touch to make that case because if you're being attacked, resistance is logical. Then we see the Federation discriminate and be racist against Odo. Then the Federation ghoul tells Cisco he's not allowed to question Federation policy. The Federation here is being painted as the antagonist. The authoritarian. We've seen inklings of this before throughout DS9 so far. 
and even from the first episode of the series, Picard was portrayed antagonistically. Cisco has to be like, you killed my wife, but because the Federation says that's chill, I'm supposed to act chill. So from the outset, DS9 has been painting a slow picture. Cisco even says, do they think they're saints? And goes off on the Federation. This isn't your parents' Trek show. This was, Deep Space Nine was not received well by many classic Trekkers. Was it sacrilegious? Yeah, some people thought that dealing with war and gray areas was sacrilegious to the tenets of Gene Roddenberry. But Gene Roddenberry had recently passed away and they were trying to do something different. They were trying to create, you know, this world of, of you know, there was a time where there were several Trek shows on at the same time and they didn't want to do more of the same thing. Some of people's criticisms of Voyager, right, is that Voyager is just like a less good the next generation because it's got a similar vibe. It's a uh, ship traveling where Deep Space Nine purposefully was trying to create a a station that's in a in a in a place where there was war. So you're gonna have you're gonna have people who are like, I don't want my my sci-fi to be political, which is hilarious because sci-fi and speculative fiction has always been political. And yeah, the people were not feeling this, which is hilarious because again, the Maquis play into Voyager and now are popular characters, you know. But like Deep Space Nine is the sort of sort of show where you can like it's not like pulling teeth or like being silly when I'm like, you know, I can think of like Thomas Sankara when I think of this episode. You know what I mean? Which which doesn't happen in other Trek. You can apply that to newer Trek, but newer Trek is newer Trek realized that I know this is not the greatest word, but like the people actually really like woke Trek and to just work into it. And people that love the new Trek shows love the new Trek shows. Like Trek is back. And Picard isn't even the best new Trek show by by a mile. And that's because they're leaning into all of this. But 25 years ago, people were not feeling it. Now, this episode does paint a lot of the Federation authoritarianism on naivete, but it's probably the only way they were allowed to criticize it. Anything more would have been a bridge too far. To your point, this was already too far for many fans. And often, executives and producers are the real cops on a show, not the characters. I've heard this firsthand from Hollywood writers I know. One of the most notorious cops is Disney. They definitely want to use radicalism to push for the status quo, and it's intentional. Disney is also union busters, so fuck Disney. They're also brilliant, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, but their ability to like get people to cape for them, even though they are the machine, and to to create to create stuff like, you know, Black Panther and Black Panther Two, Wakanda Forever, where there's like, your your like rooting for like CIA characters and like you're sort of like, wait, these are bad guys. Um, and, and if you criticize it, you're like, Oh, you're hating on this stuff. And I'm like, these, these are billion dollar movies. I, and I'm not, I like the black Panther movies, but I don't pretend that they're not some sort of propaganda. Disney is not an underdog. Disney is not an underdog. Marvel is not an underdog. I used to get beat up for liking Star Trek and Marvel and comic books when I was a kid. That is not the case anymore. And I'm glad that kids and adults and people are able to enjoy nerdy shit without fear. But yeah, Marvel's not good people. To your point about the brilliance of Disney, just because they let the companies they own keep their original names doesn't mean it's not a monopoly. Every writer and person I know who works for Marvel or Fox or Hulu or any subsidiary, they always say they work for Disney. Only the fans die on a hill to try and say it's all different. The fans will cape for Disney 
while making fun of conservatives who like rage against the machine. To your point, Disney is the machine. They own so much of media. Fans who try to make it all seem separate are trying to deny monopoly. You're just helping Disney. You're being anti-worker. You're being pro-capitalist and pro-monopoly. And that's what they want. They want you to be on the side of monopoly. And they're all, it's, it's all a one of a company that controls most of the entertainment business. And don't get me wrong, I like some of the things that they make, you know, but defending Marvel Universe does not make you subversive. The fact you even feel like you have to caveat how you like some Disney stuff speaks to the cult and how sensitive even leftists are about Disney content. So let's think about how fucked up that is. Disney is so good at getting people to die on a hill for them. They underpay their workers and writers. They're notorious, even in Hollywood. Underpay and overwork. Post-production, visual effects, writers. So you got fans saying the shitty unrendered CGI is just being retro when it's terrible working conditions for the visual effects staff. They overwork writers and pay them so little, so the writers can't write good shit. But it doesn't matter because the fans will watch it and recommend it anyway. They'll even sell you on the bad writing as a feature of why the show is good. Oh, the first eight episodes are bad, but then it gets good. Oh, the first season is bad, but then it gets good. This is how people recommend all the Marvel and Star Wars shows. But what's really going on here? The writers don't have the time or ability to write more than two good episodes a season. Then they extend the rest of it out with bad episodes and the fans don't even recognize this. They think this is all part of some creative genius plan rather than signs of creatives being abused. Also, the execs have so much oversight on every project. There is no creativity from the creatives. It's all designed by Disney business execs. It all comes from the top down, not bottom up. But rather than criticism or saying it's a shit show with only two good episodes, fans are like, it's a good show with eight bad episodes. But the rest of the season is only two more episodes. They avoid thinking about the conditions of the workers. And, and in comparison, you know, on Paramount Plus, and I'm not saying Paramount is some great company, you know, like I'm never going to watch that new Top Gun movie because like I'm not interested in that sort of shit. I'm not. What they're doing with the Yellowstone series and the Star Trek series is that they're just giving people what they want. And, and it's awesome. If you like, if you like Yellowstone, it's not really my particular thing, but like they make movies and they make shows and they're like giving you what you want. And they're just making Star Trek content. And it's awesome. And nobody's dying on a hill for Paramount. No, even though they're actually doing what people want, is that there are definitely some angry people who do not like woke Star Trek. But most Star Trek fans that I speak to, people who, whether they're like Star Trek purists or new to Star Trek, they love Discovery. They love Strange New Worlds. They like Picard. Apparently, uh, Prodigy and Lower Decks are awesome, and it's just different. And you can just tell that it's made by people, even if the episodes are bad. Like even Deep Space Nine, we've been struggling with some of the episodes, but like they're not like bad, and they're not like soulless or like you're like I don't know. It doesn't feel like some of these other shows, which just don't feel like they're directed. I it feels like they're you can just tell which parts of a Marvel movie was directed by, by a person or was directed by suits. Here's another thing. As bad as these middle episodes can get in DS9, they're still made and acted by people. Disney is already stuff created by business algorithms, and most of their characters are now CGI. So with all the AI art and AI writing bots, you know this is perfect for Disney who's already been trying to automate all their stuff all along and make everything like Disneyland. Bob Iger is coming back to Disney, and during his time away from Disney, he's been working on Web3, digital reality and bots and blockchains and NFTs. Jesus. One of the rumors is 
Disney will buy the Web3 company that Iger invested in, which is really a legal way to funnel more money to himself. The creative genius. Yeah, creative as shit like this. So all that Web3 is going to get rolled up into Disney and form a bigger monopoly, but also a more consistent Disney product and also more control. It's something that's generally happening in the U.S. The U.S. is just becoming more anti-worker and these bots are a part of it. Instead of putting people first during the pandemic, they're like, AI won't get sick. That's their fucking lesson, to replace people with AI. And they gaslit Americans to believe AI would come from outside the U.S. and from communism, when of course it's going to come from Silicon fucking Valley and capitalism. Who else? It's not by coincidence AI suddenly appeared out of nowhere and blew up after the pandemic. Then the U.S. bullies China to open up manufacturing again so the U.S. can be back in business and get more chips for all these AI companies and also so people can get their iPhones regardless of how many Chinese people are now getting and dying of COVID. And when Chinese workers protested Apple's working conditions, the U.S. blamed it on the lockdowns. What the fuck? It's all anti-worker wherever the worker is. In She-Hulk, they literally made Disney's plans to use AI and shit on workers a joke. They're really good at being anti-worker and pro-status quo and pro-US imperialism than using representation, whether it's good or bad, or pop girl boss feminism as a shield. But I guarantee Disney is already experimenting with AI. AI needs IP to function. It doesn't create, it copies. That's perfect for Disney because they don't do original content. They just repurpose old shit. So it's the perfect marriage and people will probably die on a hill for AI if Disney is doing it. Just as Americans are getting mad, China is placing watermarks on AI generated content. But what are you saying? Why are you getting mad? Is this like, won't anyone think of the AI? Think of all the Chinese people now dying because of our perverse definitions of freedom and free markets. If you love the Southpaw Project, become one of our financial supporters. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. We can't exist without your contributions. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at southpawpod.com. I found, I don't know, about three or four years ago, my partner and I were watching a Netflix movie and it was so clear that it was written by an algorithm to cater to ideas and tastes. And it just like felt so gross. Like I think they, just from looking at the aggregate data, of people's watching habits, making movies that are incredibly ephemeral that you just watch. And I just was like, this is gross. And you just see it happen. And I just, I I don't want that. And that's the interesting thing about, you know, these corporations is that Miramax and like Fox were making Michael Moore movies that were totally shitting on these companies but they were making them money, so they were willing to do it. Like apparently this Andor show on the Star Wars Andor show is like super subversive and awesome. And it's made by Disney because they will do what sells. Capitalism will shit on capitalism for capitalism. Now going back to cops, if the producers and execs are cops in the show, The Federation and Cardassians are the cops in this sector. That's the analysis you have to approach this from. And in this episode, they literally paint the Federation and Cardassia as cops. But one as the good cop, the other as the bad cop, but both cops. Right. This is, this is, and this is why it's controversial because, you know, we're starting to see the Federation is not as, utopian as you think like they are they're space cops even though it's a communist socialist uh positive utopia they're still cops and and that's why the mckee are like yo this is not working and and again like 
to, to quote Thomas Sankara, you cannot carry out fundamental change without a certain amount of madness. It comes from nonconformity, the courage to turn your back on the old formulas. And that's what I feel like the McKee is trying to do because the Federation has just left them out to dry and they start seeing that. But basically what you see is that it's really great to be part of the Federation when you're in the nice areas of the Federation. But when you're left on the outskirts and sort of told to go fuck yourself, it's different. And, you know, modern problems go for modern solutions. So I understand where the McKee is coming from. I'm not glad at it, but I'm not mad at it, to quote Jay Electronica. So the Federation is the suburbs and the first world, and the McKee aren't living in the burbs and have different problems. Right. And that's what Cisco says. Cisco pretty much says that, which I thought was really dope. I don't know. I was really feeling Cisco this episode and the acting. Uh, the acting on this episode was top notch. And again, Ducat and Cisco, just, I love it. And there's also a character arc for Cisco where he grew from where he started out in this two parter and also from where he started out in the beginning of this series. Oh, hell yeah. Now, since this is an arc about the DMZ, if you read it as being about Korea, then it gets really reactionary. I'm sure conservatives could read it like that. And unfortunately, this is how many Americans see Korea and Vietnam, when in reality, the U.S. is the Federation and Cardassia. But I think this story arc is more using the DMZ as a plot device and imagining a DS9-specific storyline without necessarily saying this is an allegory for Korea. But what's fucked up about American indoctrination is people read criticisms about the U.S. as a defense for the U.S., like Star Wars. I mean, conservatives like Andor, and they think it's about them and American underdogs when the showrunner, like Lucas before him, said it's about revolutionary groups. The showrunner said it's about Palestine and the early funding of the communist revolution in Russia, and it's about Che. These are the allegories. But this misreading happens because the oppressors have a persecution complex and see themselves in the underdogs and paint the underdogs as oppressors. Capitalism understands this. This is why they like underdog stories, because they know viewers won't read it as an anti-capitalist story. They know they'll read it as plucky American underdogs fighting communism. That's how most Americans, including liberals, read Star Wars. Right, and even Fanon said that most people don't think of themselves as bad people. Now, rather than Korea, this is a story about separatists because it's people fighting for their own identity that's separate from a bigger group or the Federation. Now, this episode didn't explore what it means to be a settler or a colonist, and it's assumed there were no other life forms here. But as we've seen with Odo Epps, you can have life forms that are undetectable. Also, claiming land and territory in space is also fraught with problems. It's also a very human concept that not even all humans historically shared, and it was forced upon them. Also, we're learning more and more that there is internal conflicts within Cardassia. Even Gal Dukat is falling victim to it as a scapegoat. And I'm curious where this is going to lead, but the show is not painting Cardassians as black and white, at least not in this episode. Gal Dukat plays important to the show. That's all I'm going to say about that. We also see the contrast between Cisco and crew and Goldicott, but the U.S. is closer to the Cardassian way of doing things rather than Cisco's. A lot of Ducat's suggestions are standard U.S. geopolitics and military and cop strategy. But this contrast is a way for American viewers to feel good about themselves and think they're Cisco. But then also be happy at the good cop, bad cop of Goldicott and Cisco and think, well, I guess they do make a good team. Cardassia isn't that bad. Yeah, because that's your country. The U.S. is a cop and the U.S. likes cops. So making Cardassian fascists like cops make fascists acceptable to American audiences. We have to remember most of white American society likes cops and cop shows. So comparisons to cops aren't a negative, 
but a way to endear a character to this audience. Another theme of this story is about the greater good, which many Americans use to excuse nearly everything. Except in these stories, you have equal powers. Whereas in real life, it's one-sided, and the actions of the dominant power is not to prevent a war, but to dominate, even if that means war. A current example of the illusion of the greater good is the downfall of effective altruism. Do bad to do overall good, where what was really happening was do bad for your own gain at the cost of others. It's just rebranded American libertarianism. It's fraud, which so-called free markets like. But the character of Dukat in this episode does say, what's that human expression? Shoot to kill? Ouch. The writer snuck that one in there. Now, this is the second time Cisco and team has had to stop the rebels, and the rebels become the baddies. And it seems like that's beginning to wear on Cisco a bit. How much can he take? But as far as dramatic storytelling, this was much better and also more nuanced than previous episodes about suppressing Bajoran rebels. The addition of Dukat made the stakes that much higher. The writers are starting to figure out the winning formula as far as building tension and power dynamics. Now, the Maquis might sound familiar. The other name for this is the French Resistance, resisting Nazis in World War II. There's a hat tip to this when they mention New Berlin. So even in the name of the Maquis, it's telling you they're really the good guys. So who are the Federation in this instance? Who are the Cardassians? They're both kind of the Nazis. Or you could see it as fascism and neocolonialism. Or the mafia, where one mob boss takes over the area of another mob boss. That isn't liberation. Also related, listeners should Google rape during the liberation of France to frame what the U.S. was. The U.S. military sexually assaulted thousands of French women. Four to 5,000 by some estimates, but probably more. In the UK, the US attacked fellow black soldiers because the UK wasn't enforcing the same Jim Crow laws white Americans were used to. US military in Australia made Australia enforce segregation to make their soldiers feel more comfortable and to enforce US Jim Crow laws. So the US was spreading their racist laws to their allies and everywhere else while fighting Nazis. Think about that. In their so-called wars against communism, it was even worse. They were literally oppressing BIPOC. And during the Korean War, they were set to execute numerous black soldiers without a trial because of racism. Also, we can't let France off the hook because they massacred their own African soldiers who helped them fight the war. So the historic good guys aren't the good guys. It was baddies fighting baddies for their own interests. Because colonialism already meant Western powers conquered all the resources. There was no new resources to take. No new people to exploit and genocide. So all that was left was for Europe to invade Europe. Going back to the fraud of the greater good, one of the themes of DS9 is that of hiding or covering up the truth for the greater good. And this is the MO of the U.S. that's been adopted by the writers. All these things that Scott and I have mentioned, not just in this episode, but in all the episodes, the reason why you don't hear about it or learn about it is because it's covered up for the morale. They don't want you to know about all the dirty business the so-called good guys did. But for whose morale? If they think they're doing it for the greater good, the greater good for who? Not the people they oppressed. It's like saying colonialism and enslavement was for the greater good, which people do. Even if they don't explicitly say it, a lot of people tacitly believe it. But for the greater good, for who? The ending of this episode being ambiguous was good. Gray, like you said. Was Cisco wondering if what he did was the right thing and what the point of it all was? That's how the episode should end. Don't give me some preachy Christian ending. Keep it real with blood on everyone's hands. Keep it messy. He also let his friend live, which goes back to something we talked about. 
how the DS9 crew will put personal loyalty above the rules. Unless, of course, it's a clone or Odo. Then they'll kill you. Now, Bernie Casey was brilliant. My favorite guest star so far. This two-parter felt like a standalone movie, partially because of him. Well, yeah, I thought I thought Bernard Bernard Casey like really made it. I think he's just one of the great character actors of our time. And yeah, he's even like when you think of him like even if you think of like problematic movies like Revenge of the Nerds, you think of his character, you know, with the tri lambdas. Now, that, that movie does not age well at all, but his performance is something I think about. Yeah, he's just a great actor. Yeah, it's him, him, and, him and Brooks just ate the, ate the scenery. It's just, just lovely. It's just, it's just a good episode, good acting, good character development. It was a good, it was a good diptych of the two episodes. I enjoy it. I like a good two-parter. Just give me more. And I think this is the first time we've seen two black actors leading a Star Trek episode. That made a lot of difference, which is also something probably the 90s purists didn't like. Let's be real. Racism was probably a part of it. Black people existing in space, in the future, in sci-fi. A lot of white people still don't like that. Now, Scott. Can you tell us about the next episode? I would love to. The Wire. We get some Bashir and Garrett goodness. Until then. Da-da-da-da.